WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everybody. You know, every once in a while in the broadcasting business, you meet someone who becomes a friend for many, many years, and you wish you had worked a lot longer. And such a gentleman is joining us today on City Talk. He is Stu Fink, a producer from WBZ Radio and general manager of WRCA Radio, and took time out to come in and talk to us about all kinds of stuff. So, Stu, how you doing? I'm never hurting for things to talk about when I'm with you. (laughs) All right. I always like to find out. I mean, my parents gave me a tape recorder when I was 10 years old, and I was hooked on radio ever since. What was it that gave you the germ to decide to pursue that as your career? Well, we have a lot in common in that regard. I think it was my mother who got me listening to the radio. She was the music lover. uh, And being in the New York City area, we had all these great radio stations that did nothing but play music, whether it was rock and roll for the time or the more traditional songbook music, although they weren't calling it that then. Uh, So thanks to my mother, I would hear Everything from, I would hear Sinatra, uh, and I would hear Patti Page, uh, and I would hear some of the big bands. But then I would also hear some of the lighter stuff, like Sam Cooke, or Bobby Rydell, or Jack Jones, or Edie Gourmet, uh, or Sergio Mendez before he started having really big hits. So uh, my mother planted the musical bug in my mind, and then radio, uh, uh, you know, I just took to that. And then I think when I was seven years old, I got my first tape recorder. So uh, I started speaking into microphones at a very young age. So uh, that's how it started for me. Later, I would go to summer camp in the Catskills, which is what your parents do. Uh, When you're a young boy living in New York City, they ship you out to the mountains for the summer. (laughs) If for no other reason, so they can get rid of you. Uh, And I went to a camp in the Catskills owned by a really far out guy. Most people thought he was a pain in the neck businessman, but he put in uh, videotape recorders. He put in television cameras. He had a carrier current radio station, a photography darkroom, a rocketry workshop, a ham radio laboratory. Uh, And this is the late 1960s. So a lot of that hadn't become commonplace yet. Uh, And that's so at at the age of 10 years old, uh, I worked at my first radio station uh, at a summer. Wow. And you, you beat me by several years. I beat you by several years. I don't talk about it much. I think you're the first <laughs> person to ever ask me about it. But uh, that's how I got started in radio at the age of 10 years old, in between fourth and fifth grade. Yeah, my mother got me involved with music and uh, my dad got me involved with sports. So that's how I got bit by that, that kind of bug. Now, did you go to a, a broadcast college or anything like that? I did, actually, when I finally got out of high school, which was in 1976. Uh, In September of 1976, I was enrolled in Boston uh, at a college. I'm not sure I want to give them a plug, although I suppose I could. Uh, (laughs) But uh, yeah, and then uh, I matriculated for four years in Boston, lived in Back Bay from 1976 to 1980. Uh, And while I was work, while I was in my senior year, uh, I started working in radio at 1510 on the dial. Ah, WMEX. Right, exactly. They had just changed. They were called WITS at the time. Ah, 
Yeah, and, I remember the fun we used to have with those call letters. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> you remember that? I remember that. I remember Mike Lynch very well there. And I also remember Cliff Keen, who was uh, an old-time sports writer with the Boston Globe, who called everybody Bush. Bush. Busher. Bush. Cliff Keen yeah. worked with, had, had a show with uh, Larry Claflin. Larry Claflin, and, right. Uh, known as Cliff and Claff. I knew Larry very well. Uh, sad to say I was with him when he died, even sadder. But that original lineup at WITS, it, it's easy to forget because it was so long ago, but uh, they had from California, and he got no respect in Boston, but he was like the king of rock and roll in California, Bob Hudson. They call him the emperor. Emperor Hudson. Yep. Also, where Ron Landry had a hit record called the Ajax Liquor Store. But yeah. Emperor Hudson was there. Dr. Joy Brown was there. Pat Whitley was there. They had a great sportscaster who later uh, uh, scored big in Chicago, Tom Scher, Glenn Ordway, Mike Lynch. You had the Red Sox. You had the Bruins. You had Cliff and Claff, Larry Claflin and Cliff Keene. Such an amazing lineup of talk programs. Uh, it did well for a while. And then I think as FM became more dominant and talk radio got a little more competitive on the AM band, their ratings started to drop uh, and it got real ugly. But what happened was I got laid off on a Friday and a former boss of mine at WITS who'd gone to WBZ was Chris Cross. And so three days after losing the job at WITS, WBZ hired me on the spot. I go in for an interview and they hire me on the spot. How weird is that? How many times yeah. has that happened in a lifetime? That you're, you're, you're very lucky. It's like falling into a job. Well, I got lucky because I got to work with you. Well, that was, that was paid dirt. No, because I got to tell you, I was a radio producer before, like you, and a disc jockey also. But I was a radio producer. Uh, and, you know, in those days, you work behind a desk, you have a newspaper, you have a telephone. I wasn't really savvy on a lot of the tricks that radio producers can have to make themselves and their programs successful. So all the tricks that I would eventually learn as a radio producer, I would learn from Kenny Meyer. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And I, now, what... I, I still use some of those tricks today <laughs> in my professional life. Yes. I do. Now, when I got hired, I got hired for a specific job uh, to work with a guy you may have heard of named Larry Glick. Did you, <laughs> did you get hired with, with something in mind or did you just get hired to start and figure it out later? No, they had a production manager and I don't remember Tom something. Uh, and he was being kicked upstairs to television uh, and they needed somebody really, really quick. They didn't have time to conduct a search. I come walking in the door. And they ask me to, they hire me. And then I said, not only did they hire me, it's okay, you got the job. No, you got the job. You start right away. Studios around the corner. <laughs> Needless to say, I was jumping out of my skin, uh, but that's how that started. I was not hired to work with Glick uh, specifically. I mean, I did eventually work with him uh, both casually and uh, later I was assigned to be his full-time producer, but I worked with everybody there. I worked with Dave Maynard. I worked with Charlie Jeffords, who I already knew, Ron Robin, uh, Bob Raleigh, uh, the entire news department, Don Batting, Gary LaPierre, Stephen Smith. Uh, I'm oh, trying yeah. to who else was there. I think they had a, a, a news director named Dave Coakley. 
Um, yeah, and they had somebody, Jim Dorsey, too. I don't know if he was there when you Ed, were there Ed, or not. Ed, Ed Dorsey. Ed Dorsey. Ed yeah. Dorsey, right. Ed Dorsey, and, yeah. And Ed Bell, who was the news director, and is still alive, I understand, from Susan Warnick up in New Hampshire. Okay, so, I didn't know Ed Bell. I think that was slightly before my time. A lot of those, a lot of those people are 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 still around. Um, Although I ran into recently Clark Schmidt, he was there before me, and I ran into Clark at a luncheon about a week or two or three ago. Yep, I remember him, and and they had a great lineup. And one of the things that I'll always remember, and you and I talked about it yesterday, was a documentary that you and I did uh, on a fellow named Arthur Fiedler. Mm. Yeah, that was probably the first thing that you and I actually worked on together. And I got this assignment, I guess, because WBZ radio used to have the pops at the time and they had lost the pops for that season or they jumped to another station or the way things go with those kind of things. So they came up with the idea, well, let's do a, a pops simulate a pops concert and kick it off with an Arthur Fiedler documentary. So that became my project. What I remember about that was you and I sitting around trying to brainstorm the thing and you come up with the idea, well, let's get to Bob Hope. And I'm like, how are you going to get Bob Hope? I'm going to call him up. Are you going to call up Bob Hope? Yeah. Tell me another one. And sure enough, about an hour later, you come running into the studio. Stu, Stu, Bob Hope's on the phone. No, he's not. Pick up the phone. Uh, Oh, hi, Bob. And, and, it, and, it, and it was. I mean, that's no joke. It really was Bob Hope. And yeah, those are. That's what I learned. If you're a radio producer, you have to have no shame. You got somebody you talk to, you want to talk to, pick up the phone and call them. And that's what you did. And, that's what uh, I did. And then what happened was, because it was July 4th weekend, there was so much going on. And there was like no time to like sit around during the day producing documentaries. And that's what I had to do. And so I ended up being in there on like a Saturday night at like midnight, one o'clock, trying to finish the thing. And you were coming in to do your overnight radio show. So you heard uh, some of the documentary and uh, you said, well, let's go on the air to discuss it. Uh, and I did. And that was July 4th weekend, 1983. Uh, and we're coming up on the 40 year anniversary of that. Uh, our first uh, uh, on-air powwow, you might say. Ken Meyer and special guest Stu Fink. And we talked on BZ. That was the first time, 1983. So you and I I'm are celebrating dating. 40 years together on the air and yep. uh, uh, probably a little bit more off the air. Yep. A, a date which will live in infamy. And actually, no. I, I have some sound from that first radio show. I don't know why I was in such a good mood and being so nice, but this was when we were talking to a caller named Fred. I still think it's, it's like this. You don't mess around with Ken Meyer. Ken Meyer is the man who brought real polish, real panache, real pizzazz to Boston radio. I would, I would like to say now um, for everybody listening in Boston okay. and, and 38 states, know that I think that Ken Meyer is one of the true champions of this business. Oh, and I don't goodness. want anyone else to argue with me. I don't want anyone to tell you. <laughs> Otherwise, I am saying it here now, and it is a fact. Ken Did Meyer... Did he give you as much money as he gave me? Did he no, give I you only, more than 20? I only got him a roast beef sandwich. That, that's all it takes. 
just, oh, just a roast beef special with the french fries. Yeah. <laughs> oh, roast beef sandwich and french fries. Go ahead, torture me at this hour in the morning. It's all right. I don't know whatever happened to that caller. I think his name was Fred. He called me at a few radio stations, and uh, I have a few recordings of him, but I don't know whatever happened to him. Maybe you know. I, I don't know. I remember his name was Fred Barker, and he was very interested in the space program, and he wanted to get involved somehow with that and the astronauts and that's all i can remember but where yeah, he ever remember, went you remember more than i do all i remember is he would call up and talk about food <laughs> now which was, which was always a great topic with you and i <laughs> we had some of the best i think people in sports broadcasting i mean you mentioned some on a talk lineup but we had people like bob wilson oh, johnny yeah. most oh yeah and a gentleman a gentleman that you have a piece of sound of and who was a dear, dear friend of both of us. And that was Gil Santos. Well, while we were doing that show that night, that Arthur Fiedler show, at one point you looked at the clock and remembering or knowing the fact that the Boston Breakers, uh, which were in season at that time, their one season in Boston, that was my assignment to the radio station. WBZ used to broadcast the Breakers game. That was my gig. So here I am up all night playing radio with you while I have to be back at 12 noon for the Breakers game. And you mentioned that. And we start talking about a particular play during that, uh, during that season. And one highlight specifically, and I told you I had it. So I went, ran into the other room to grab it. And it sounded something like this. If I can get my high-tech system to work. Hello. <laughs> Listen, you found it, Stu. This is a, uh, I'll let Stu, uh, we were talking about this game earlier, and this was a play that, that occurred in this game, and I like it just because it, uh, just because Gil really gets excited and everything, and I always enjoy moments like this in broadcasting, and I'll let you set it up before we play it. This was back on May 29th, 1983. It was a game between the Boston Breakers and the Philadelphia Stars, and the Breakers were behind by, I believe, three or four points. And there were four seconds left in the game. This was the last play, the Boston Breakers versus the Philadelphia Stars. Fourth down, final play of the game, four seconds left. Breakers trailing 17 to 13. The snap to Walton, back to throw, fires, and it is caught! A touchdown! And was was, the, was that Gino Capoletti that was with him? That is probably the single most exciting moment of the 1983 Breakers season. No question about that. You got to don't ever erase that. Oh no! If I didn't have that that air check of you and I on the air, I would have lost that highlight. But yes, that was Gino along with Gil to answer your question. Wow! What a, what a great memory that brings back, and what a what a great team those two guys were. They uh, were, but but you know what? You and I turned out to be a good team on the radio. True. Also, we we did a lot of those old record shows in the yeah, middle. Yeah, I was going to get into that. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah uh, that, we, that was a lot of fun. We did what we would call rare record shows, and we would play back in those days when you could do that. We would play old, full recordings of 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 songs or speaking records. Um, who was the guy, McGregor and the Americans? Oh, boy. we interviewed him, Byron McGregor. We interviewed yes. him. He did, he did the song, The Americans, which was 
BZ used to have a lot of unusual records that became very popular on the station. Uh, and that was one of them. Uh, the Americans, Byron McGregor. We also played, uh, what was it? Desiderata. Desiderata, Les Crane. Les Crane. I think we interviewed him also. You had Dennis Day on one night. That, yep. was, that wasn't too unusual. I think you did that quite <laughs> often back in the day because you knew him. Yep, very well. As a and of fact. oh, and my gosh, and the stuff that we played. Um, and that's why years later I can tell people that the very few people know that Kenny Meyer, one of his favorite songs was She Can't Find Her Keys by Paul Peterson. <laughs> people give me strange looks when I say that, but we used to play Bob Lumen, Let's Think About Living, and what was it? Betty Johnson, The Little Blue Man. Yep. I don't yep. even know. That's I don't know if anybody even remembers these records today. I remember them, and I found it's funny too because I found that song by Bob Lumen on YouTube the other day. I looked for it and found it. Oh Let's well, think yeah, about you Lumen. know, back in the day, you know, you had to have a record collection, or you had to know somebody who owned a record store to find some of these things. You know, we were talking about records of the '60s that we were playing in the '80s, so they were extinct by the time we got to them. But yet we had to find them. Some you had, some I had. I was lucky; I knew a lot of people who could help us find these things. But now you don't need that. You don't need vinyl. You don't need CDs. You don't need 16 millimeter films or eight tracks or anything like that. All you need is a YouTube account. You don't even need a YouTube account. You can just log on from anywhere and, and yep. find a lot of the, I find something and I, and the, the original analog format, I say, Oh my God, this is so rare. And then I look <laughs> on YouTube and there it is. Yep. So I don't know yep. what to believe anymore. About that. Same thing with television shows. I was sitting here the other day watching a bunch of old Dick Van Dyke shows with Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore. And oh, those and, are uh, such fun. Those are such the fun. Danny, the Danny Thomas show, which I absolutely loved. Oh, I love that. And uh, got to interview him twice. And uh, it was just, uh, you know, as Peter Gollenbach, the sports writer, wrote once in his book, one of his books, it was a great time to be around. And it was a great time to be alive. I'll agree it was, with you. It was a great time. Now, you mentioned we mentioned Larry Glick a little while ago. How in the heck did you get involved with that character? <laughs> uh, I was, uh, after three years of being production manager through circumstances, I was assigned to become Larry's full-time producer and i'd known larry and he'd known me i don't think he really thought much of me and i'm not quite sure how much i thought of him but then when they paired us together and we worked together uh and we had done a show one night uh and i gave him some ideas that we used and they turned out really well and he was like son of a gun Stu fink i'm like son of a gun larry glick uh, and <laughs> so we we um we hit it off and i was with him for about a year should have stayed more uh but then well, I was working at BZ and always thinking in the back of my mind, well, it's nice to be working with Maynard and Glick and Raleigh and Norm Nathan and Ron Robin and Charlie Jeffords and Gary LaPierre. But I would like to, you know, be something close to one of those guys, you know, someday and have my own on-air presence and be that guy. And while so while I was working with Glick, he was on vacation, I think, in Israel. I got an offer to to have an afternoon show on my own radio station uh, out in middle of the state somewhere. So I had to decide, do I want to be a full-time board op or if, try to be a full-time radio announcer? So I 
with tears in my eyes. Uh, I had to resign from the show. I had to call Larry. I had to resign from the station. And I kind of left abruptly only because opportunity was knocking. I kind of regretted that, that, that I would leave a station like that so quickly, but I don't know. That was, was what was in the cards for me at that time, I guess, I guess. Well, I was kind of under the same circumstances. Um, I know. WEEI in Boston was doing a show called Radio Classics, and uh, they were looking for a full-time host. And they had all kinds of different people filling in because they couldn't find one. They had Norm Nathan doing it. They had Counselor Dapper O'Neill doing it. (laughs) So Doug Steffen was the program director at WEEI, who used to work at BZFM. I knew him. So yeah. I I picked up the phone and called him and we got together and had dinner over at the stockyard and Ooh, we worked out a deal. Oh, of the stockyard. Yeah, me too. And, you know, I had to go back to BZ. I was there for 14 years and I had to do the same thing you did. I had to go in and say, look, I, I'm, I'm going to do this. I, it means more time being on the air. Uh, and work for less hours and get more money. Now, who in their right mind wouldn't turn that down? So you know, that's I, the thing about radio. You get faced with these opportunities and you have to act quickly and you don't always have a lot of time to either think about it or lament about it. You just have to go do it. And, and, and that's the business that's showbiz. That's what you have to go through. Uh, and it's hard. No. I mean, it's, it's hard. It's hard on you, but uh, you did it. I did it. I watched you do it. And then I had to do it myself. So <laughs> you, as they say, followed in my footsteps. I huh? did. I did. I did. I did. Now, I also know uh, from talking with you that you were involved with a gentleman who was very famous and worked with Mary Ford. And I'm talking about Les Paul. <laughs> you remember that? I remember that. Yep. Les, Les Paul. I had a friend who knew Les Paul and say, hey, and, and these were down years for Les Paul when people didn't really remember who Les Paul was. Maybe, you know, George Fennell over at Music of Your Life knew who Les Paul was. And a couple Boy, of there's people. a name. All the world loves a name dropper. Yes. And so do I. So I figure if I drop somebody's name today, they'll drop my name tomorrow. But Les, <laughs> Les Paul, I won't say he was down and out because the man was never down and out. It was just down years in terms of his popularity when he was enjoying life in the private sector. And I guess around 1980, he'd had some very complicated heart surgery and he thought he was done for. Uh, And then five years later, he's feeling healthy and playing guitar and realizing he's not going to die. And so he makes a comeback. And it was around that time that I got to know him and I called to book him for Glick, and it turns out that he knew Larry Glick because Les Paul was not only a great musician, but he was an inventor. He was a techie, uh, and he understood AM radio propagation, and he knew that when the sun sets at night, the AM band opens up, and you have all these signals coming in from all these different cities where he lived in New Jersey was strategically good for that because he was just outside New York City enough that you wouldn't get all that nonsense interference coming out of the city. And so he knew on such and such a frequency, you'd get the station from Baltimore 
or that station from Chicago or that that 700 was Cincinnati and at 1030 was WBZ Boston. So when I mentioned to him that I was working at WBZ in Boston, he said, oh, my gosh, how's Larry Glick? I told Larry that story and Larry was amazed and they ended up becoming very good friends. Ladies and gentlemen from New Jersey, the one and only Rhubarb Red, sometimes called himself Les Paul. And he's going to sing an old country tune for the sick and shut in friends around southern New Jersey. Golly. <laughs> What's it going to be, uh, Rhubarb Red? It's called I Want My Rip. I Want My Rip. Okay. There it is, baby. <laughs> Time ago, as everyone may know, I don't slept beneath an apple tree. An angel came one day and took one rib away, bah, 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 and made a woman of it for Adam's company. I had an x-ray taken and the doctor, he told me that I had one rib missing in my anatomy. My rib. That's enough? No, no. <laughs> that was fine. Well, I'm not sure. And in studio that night when we recorded that, which was the night before Thanksgiving, 1985, it was a Wednesday night. In studio was Larry Glick, Tom Bergeron, oh. Stu, Stu Fink, and, um, and, and Les Paul from his home in New Jersey. Uh, and we did wow. three hours together. We we played songs and Les picked up his guitar and played and sang. And it was just three hours of absolutely amazing radio. And, and Les would later come back and be with Larry several more times. And then when Larry would leave to go to another station, Norm Nathan would have him on. And Les Paul's career was just reborn after that. He became uh, a big, uh, a big deal in the music industry again and touring all over the world and, performing and uh, not bad for a guy who was crawling into his eighties at that point. My buddy, Stu Fink, producer extraordinaire on air host is with us here on this great edition of city talk. Now you eventually became an executive. Uh, you became general manager of a radio station. I did. Is there, is there a way to make a long story shortest? I did that. Well, what I can tell you is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, when uh, I got laid off from WITS and three days later, a former boss hired me at another radio station uh, in 1991 when the economy was really bad. And I was working at an oldie station in Boston, which turned into a business station and ultimately got let go. A similar story. I got let go on a Thursday and on Friday I meet with a former boss um, whose name was Harold Bosmer. And, oh. he, and and he hires me at uh, a station down the dial with WRCA. And uh, that's how I got started on my, I was hired as operation manager. And within five years, I became the general manager, which I did for about 20 years before semi-retiring. Harold Bosmer. I remember him. He was a salesman. He was a salesman. He was a salesman at WBZ in the seventies, and when I met him, nineteen eighty, at my first job, he was the general manager at WITS uh, um, at the time. And I still hear from Harold Bosmer. He's a great friend. We go out and uh, and say uh, bad things about people we don't like, and have a grand <laughs> old time. And have a oh, I could time. have fun doing that. Uh, that's what I'm saying. You'd fit right in. 
Harold Bosworth. And we go to all the delicatessens around Brookline and Newton, Harold and I. (laughs) He he misses the, he would love Glick because he misses the G&G, Harold Bosmer does. Very few people know about Harold Bosmer. One of his favorite restaurants of all time was the G&G Deli. Wow, I would love to see him again. We ought to try and work that out sometime. I would love to see him. I remember him very well. Yeah. Um, Good friend. Good friend. And he hired me and set me up to be a general manager. So all the big breaks that I got were from people who I had worked with previously. So they they say the networking isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Uh, With me, it was. With me, it was. And... uh, you and I got a chance to work together for a little while on that radio station because we revived Radio Classics yes. and put it on the air again. Yes, I was very proud of that. And even prouder when it had its comeback a few years ago, there was a jazz station during the pandemic uh, and they were running it uh, Saturday nights uh, at uh, 10 o'clock. And uh, there you were back on the air again. It was wonderful. They had a lot yeah, of good I- shows. They had, they had uh, uh, Danny Styles. They had Boston Country Oldies. They had real jazz, which was a local format, uh, but it was all great. Great station. Great, great, great. But sadly, the owner died and they had to shut the station off. So that was that was a heartbreak. And, and you also worked with a gentleman who I always thought had one of the great, great voices in radio. And that was Bill Marlowe. I did work with Bill Marlowe. Dear friend, dear friend. Uh, I worked with him in the last years of his life, although I'd known him most of my professional career in Boston, I knew who Bill Marlowe was, but he later became a good friend and um, yeah, miss him, miss him every day. I still have tapes of those guys and they play all over my house. So I still hear them and I still keep them with me. Just like I, can, I have tapes of you too. <laughs> I got to hear those. I, got I really got to hear those. I got lots of tapes. Now they're all digital files, but uh, I haven't played a cassette or a reel to reel in a long time <laughs> I still, you know, I still maintain all that equipment. I've got cassette decks. I have reel-to-reel decks. Uh, I do all sorts of analog to digital transfer, vinyl, film. I do all that stuff. Gives me something to do. Now, when WRCA went, as they say, dark, um, what did that do to you? And how, how, how was that for you to cope with? Well, it's always hard losing a job. But, you know, at that point... I mentioned Clark Schmidt a little earlier. Uh, He had emailed me just before that happened. And he said, you know, Stu, you've been at that station for 25 years. Uh, That's that's a generation. That's a lifetime. Uh, And so after 25 years, I'm thinking, okay, well, nothing's forever. Time to step back. Uh, And I semi-retired at that time. I still had the program with Michael Burns. uh, And I still had some other things that I was involved with. So uh, it was just really... Uh, I took that time for me to sit back and, um, hey, I had gotten married while I was um, managing WRCA. Uh, I got married on a Friday night. We eloped. We were on the road in upstate New York, and we eloped. And in the middle of eloping, my phone's going nuts. I'm like, oh, isn't this nice? My friend's calling to congratulate me. No, it was the engineer for the radio station calling to say he was having transmitter problems, didn't want to make any adjustments until he'd spoken to the manager. So I had to cut short any plans of a honeymoon I may have had to go back to work. So when I semi-retired, I said, you know what? This is a time to take for me and my wife and my life and my mental health 
uh, and my friends and all of the above. So that's what I'm doing. Uh, I, I don't cry over having lost that job uh, because I'm involved with other things and have been successful at that also. Uh, you know, I've crossed the line and gone into, you know, filmmaking and did two seasons of the Abbott and Costello show with Bob Fermanek uh, providing commentary for DVD. Uh, and yep. also there's a filmmaker in Boston. His name is Peter Flynn, teaches at one of the colleges. And he's got a, a movie coming out about uh, private collectors who are going to end up saving the world. Uh, <laughs> and it's right. called Film is Dead, Long Live Film. And I'm one of the featured players in this film. So I'm kind of in holding right now. I'm waiting for all these projects to come together and be released. One of them is out. Right. Abbott and Costello season one is out there. Yeah, let's let's talk about some of that. I um, when I was at WEI, I literally had Abbott and Costello on the air in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the, the the children of Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. Right. And, and I under. Yeah. Well, what happened was while you were doing that show and I and I'd mentioned earlier that I jumped ship and I ended up somewhere out in the middle of the state with my own talk show. Uh, and I was looking for guests and still living in Boston, but not working there. And you and I were talking one night and you had just interviewed Chris Costello, uh, who I knew because I was always a big Abbott and Costello, not a, not a fan, a nut. And I had read Chris Costello's book called Lose on First. So I'm like, <laughs> I didn't know you knew her and you, and you as casual as ever say, Oh yeah, you want a phone number? <laughs> How often does that happen in a lifetime? Somebody gives you, you know, Lou Costello's daughter's phone number. So I called her. She became a friend. She came on my program. Uh, and I got introduced to all that Abbott and Costello kind of stuff, uh, including a man named Bob Fermanek and another man, uh, Ron Palumbo, great writer from New York. And uh, these guys I'd end up working with 30 years later on these restoration projects. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, I just did uh, a thing for the second season. And uh, you may, I don't know, you may remember this. Does that sound familiar to you, Ken? A little bit. That is the theme to the second season of the Abbott and Costello show. But what you're hearing is not off a film or a DVD or anything. It's actually off the original production library uh, that it came from. It was from a service called Mutel, which stood for Music for Television, which was actually a lot of pilfered music from Poverty Row Hollywood Studios that uh, got dummied up. They changed the name. They changed the publisher. They changed the composer. They'd re-register it so they could garnish uh, royalties. And that's what you heard. And that was all that big orchestral music that you heard in early 1950s television came from libraries like that. And what I did was I tracked down the production package to hear the original theme, which sounded something like this. Now, it sounds similar to what you're used to hearing in the Abbott and Costello radio show, but it's not quite exact. And mm. what was used in the TV show was sped up and edited 
uh, and altered for its specific use. But when you hear it on the production record, it's a little different. And not only did I find the track, but Ron Palumbo and I uh, produced a bonus feature for the disc, talking about the theme and talking about the Mutel library and uh, talking about all that 1950s television music stuff. And it's, uh, it's a very interesting thing. And it's a good semi-retirement project. With the world being the way it is today, people say to me, and I still hang out in radio circles, and people say, hey, Stu, what are you doing these days? I said, oh, I'm working with Abbott and Costello. Well, Abbott and Costello, well, I thought, oh, no, they're fine. They're fine. I saw them the other day. They're great. They're just as good as ever. And, and, when, and that's what I've been doing. When you were on the air with Morgan on WBZ, I called in because when I was a lot younger, my mom, when I was in school, used to buy me a record every week. Didn't matter what it was. That's it, a was it, it was she was a great mother and she found a record with Abbott and Costello called Jack and the Beanstalk. And I found it on YouTube. I listened to it. And my gosh, what great talent and what great memories that brought back. And I found out that the recording was done in 1952. Amazing. Amazing. Now. That was just would, reissued, by the way. They just did a, a restoration project on Jack and the Beanstalk. And as a bonus feature, Jack and the Beanstalk, the movie. But as a bonus feature, they uh, included that audio recording that you're talking about. Got to hear that. Got to hear that sometime. Now, how would you compare Abbott and Costello to Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis? Well, I think without Bud and Lou, there would have been no Dean and Jerry. I think Abbott and Costello set the trend of what a comedy team could be and should be uh, and how popular uh, they could be. Uh, and so it created the need in the marketplace to try to, you know, continue that. Not that Dean and Jerry were carrying the torch for Abbott and Costello, but they were just trying to, you know, continue that of, of two guys who complimented each other either on the radio or on screen uh, and be funny and be successful. So I think that's um, that's how I would compare the two. Were Dean and Jerry as good as Bud and Lou? In some ways, yes. Uh, in other ways, no, not so much. Uh, you can't really compare the two in terms of style. Abbott and Costello had a whole different act. Whereas Dean would be charming and handsome and, and with that beautiful voice and Jerry would be, hey, lady, you know, it was just a different kind of comedy. But Dean and Jerry, certainly what are the 50s that Bud and Lou were to the 40s? Now, one thing I will mention, our friend Bob Fermanek uh, uh, worked on a, uh, a, a restoration project called Abbott and Costello Rarities. And one thing was in there, uh, if you remember the Colgate Comedy Hour, the 1950s, uh, the hosts were either uh, Bud and Lou or Dean and Jerry. And they used a few others here and there, but it was primarily Bud and Lou or Dean and Jerry, depending on which week you um, watched. And on one such week, Lou Costello, who was a very sick man, had rheumatic fever, had an attack and had to be sidelined and couldn't do a show on a particular week. And 
it was going to be up to Bud to host the show by himself. Well, Dean and Jerry stepped in and provided a lot of commentary while Bud did the uh, traditional studio announcing, but they got to work together and they keep referencing Lou throughout the program. So there was a bit of camaraderie between the two. There was some animosity between Costello and Dean Martin because Costello knew him early in the career and apparently tried to mentor him. Uh, and Dean kind of went with it and ran and never really gave Costello uh, the credit he was due. And I think Lou was hurt by that. Heard the story explained different ways through the years. But uh, there was some personal animosity between Lou and Dean. But um, I don't think Jerry or Bud Abbott ever had any bad blood between themselves. And they, they worked beautifully on this one show, which you can get on a DVD. It's called Abbott and Costello Rarities, where Bud, ha Bud Abbott hosts the Colgate Comedy Hour, but comedy is provided by Martin and Lewis. It's very interesting to watch, and just the way they all got along. It, it's funny because last week, just randomly looking around, one of the great panel shows that was on television in the 50s and 60s and lasted 17 years was What's My Line? Mm -hmm. uh, hosted by John Daly. Yep. And one of the surprise guests panelists was Jerry Lewis. And, and Daly just lost it a couple of times. He just lost it because he just would crack up at some of the things that Lewis said and some of the things that, that Lewis did and that kind of stuff just ain't around anymore. And Very funny man. Jerry Lewis could be a hard businessman. He had a hard edge to him. Uh, and, a, and a very strong business sense. And if you cross them, watch out. Uh, but the, the comedy, those movies, uh, those early radio shows, it's nothing like them. Nothing like them. Now, uh, you know, you mentioned casually getting telephone numbers. I remember once Glick suddenly decided that he wanted to talk to Don Dumphy, who was probably one of the best boxing announcers that ever sat in front of a microphone. Don and Dumphy I was listed in the phone book in Long Island back in the 70s and 80s. You could pick up the phone and call him, which is, I'm sure, is what you did. No, not exactly. I called Ring. I said, well, if I want to get a hold of a, an announcer, boxing announcer, who do I call? Ring you Magazine. Call Ring Magazine. And they just, oh, yeah, here's his number. Area code 516, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He was and in we the Greatneck or, or, Ma or Manhasset or, or one of those North Shore towns on Long Island. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And he became he became a friend of mine and I think became a friend of yours, too. Yeah, because you gave me his phone number. Yeah. <laughs> I still have his book here. Uh, Don Dunphy. Great, great book. Great man. Uh, a terrific guy to just sit around and talk boxing with. And you mentioned Ring Magazine. Did you know Nat Fleischer? Uh, only the name. Okay. I, I never I never talked to him. I'm, I mean, I certainly know who he is or was, but I, I never knew him, no. He but died, I know the name. He died shortly after the first Ali Frazier fight. You know who else died around the same time? Man, I idolized Johnny Addy, the great ring oh, announcer. Oh, the ring announcer. The ring. Oh, I adored him when I was uh, uh, 10 or 11 years old. I think my father took me to Madison Square Garden to see Bruno San Martino wrestle. And, and that was Johnny Addy country. And he was the ring announcer. And I didn't realize till years later, this was Joe Lewis, Sugar Ray Robinson, Rocky Marciano, Floyd Patterson, 
Patterson, uh, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, uh, all those fighters, uh, the, all the weights from like 1948 all the way up to let Friday night fights. He was the consummate ring announcer. Johnny Addy was. Uh, and I got to see him and meet him once. Uh, and right after I met him, he died in late 1971, I think. Yeah, and Fleischer died around the same time for all the boxing. I, I, wish, out there. I wish we had a recording because his both him, him and a gentleman named Joe Humphreys, who was another ring announcer, both had the same kind of uh, style. I don't know if that's yes. the right word. Yes. When, when they right. would announce boxers and stuff like that. And you don't find that anymore either. Yeah, there was another, uh, a very famous boxing ring announcer, Harry Below. Uh, yes, who, yes, who I know was, that name too. Who was known as being overly wordy and ostentatious uh, in, in his choice of, uh, of of sayings. So much so that they referred to his type of banter as baloney. <laughs> because his name was Harry Below. But if you see like those Joe Lewis fights from the 30s or the Max Bear fights or the Primo Carnera fights or the Jim Braddock fights. Uh, Harry Below was the ring announcer and he hung on through the 50s. I've seen some TV fights from the 50s where Harry Below was the ring announcer, but Johnny Addy pretty much took over that territory uh, at there, that time. And I love Johnny is, Addy. I got to meet him. Such an amazing... There is also a broadcast that I think is a rarity, which I have somewhere, of Mel Allen and Russ Hodges doing a boxing match out of New York. Oh my God. And that would, I, that, that's like Johnny most calling a Bruins game. Yeah. Yeah. Which did happen. This, this was, um, I want to say Tony Zale and I'm not sure who else, but Tony Zale Mel, probably in Graziano. Maybe those were, it could those be the big fights, but, I never heard another recording of Mel Allen doing a boxing match. You always associated him with baseball and, and football. But uh, he did the New York Giants and, of course, the Yankees. But I never heard him do a boxing match until then. And, and the making of a great broadcaster. I knew Marty Glickman. And he could, uh -huh. he, he could bounce back and forth from basketball to football to uh, whatever it called for, to baseball, to boxing. Uh, he was one of those great all-around announcers and sportsmen also. That's interesting you mentioned him because I happen to have the Red Sox broadcast on last night and Sean McDonough, who does radio play-by-play -play once in a while with the Red Sox, was talking with uh, Jack somebody who was the announcer for the Colorado Rockies. And... He was talking about his first time working on the air as a sideline reporter with Marty Glickman uh, he, out of New he York. Inf he influenced a lot of people, not just in the New York area, but if you were a sportscaster and you grew up listening to sportscasters uh, and studying sportscasters, the name that's always close to the top is Marty Glickman. When we had Johnny Most Night at WBZ in 1973, Marty Glickman was the MC and oh MC the event. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. What a night that <laughs> had to have been. <laughs> it was great. Um, I have a collection. Don't ask me where it is. Having something is one thing. Being able to find it, that's another. But I do have a collection <laughs> of, of Marty Glick recordings uh, and films. 
including old First, Madison Square Garden TV shows and Telesports Digests and NFL highlight reels and a lot of phonograph records that he did commentary for. Yes, I one of the first sports albums I ever got was one that my dad bought for me called Greatest Moments in Sports. And there are sections with some great, there's a boxing section with Don Dumphy. Right. There's a, <clears throat> there's a baseball section with my, my hero, Mel Allen. Yeah. And there's one on the Olympics with Marty Glickman. Marty Glickman. And I think Bill Stearns is on that album. Well, if he's not on that one, he's on another one. I have some, I have so many of those and they just all blend together in my mind. I don't remember which one is which. Boy, I hope they don't ever let anything happen to them. Because, um, a lot of these, though, not to be specific about it, but a lot of these, when we were working together on your reincarnation of Radio Classics, I put a lot of these things on discs and gave them to you. So you yes, have, you did. So you have yes. the same trouble finding them that I do. They're right on a thumb drive in my drawer, as a matter of fact. Well, at least you know, know where they are. It's more than I, I know can do <laughs> myself. I know, I know right where they are. Um, and it's, it's just so great be, to tell people that radio existed like this a long time ago is hard because people that are growing up now know radio as to what it is, but never know the great history that it was. And you know how many times I've spoken to people just in the last few years, uh, and they know that I still have a radio show that's on here, there, or somewhere. Uh, and they ask about it. And um, I said, well, where do you live? I said, oh, we're on in there. You can hear us on that station, you know, Sunday morning or whatever. And they, you know what? Same thing all the time. Hello? Oh, I don't have a radio. I get that so much now. Well, do you have oh. one in the car? Yeah, but I never listen to it. Huh. I get that so often. And now with everything's going on, the certain auto manufacturers want to eliminate AM radio from cars. Uh, and, oh, and they say, oh, there's not enough real estate in the car for him. Are you kidding? Not enough real estate. It's a little chip. That is such bunk. AM radio should be where it's always been. And it should be at people's fingertips. I when when I was younger and we would buy a we would always buy a new car. First thing I would check out. How's the radio work? Always. Right. Exactly. And those were great radios in those old cars. Oh, my yeah. God. Yes, they were with AM radio propagation. And you were on the highway in the middle of the night. I don't care what part of the country you were in. The things that would, would float in on that radio at night were amazing. Now you couldn't get every station, but those, right. those powerhouse stations that would come in from wherever. Uh, and that's when AM radio had a lot to listen to. It's the <laughs> same. Now you can still get a lot of distant stations at night. There's just nothing to listen to. Yeah. As I tell people so often, Jordan rich, who is a dear friend of mine, uh, wrote his autobiography. And the one line that I'll never forget is, does anybody remember static? <laughs> That's true. That's true. Now, you also mentioned briefly, and we should plug this too, you worked with a gentleman who I used to listen to, thanks to the lady who is now my dear wife, uh, on Sunday mornings uh, at 8 o'clock in the morning, on a country station in Boston, and that was Michael Burns. Michael Burns. Uh, Michael Burns was like Morgan White. It was one of those guys I met right out of college who was just hanging around the business. And so we met casually and became friends before we ever worked together. Uh, but I probably knew Michael Burns for about 10 years. Uh, and then we met at, uh, at 1150 on the dial at an oldie station. 
and we worked together once. I had a weekend show. He had a late night show and we decided to do a show together once. And we did, uh, which we recorded after hours, I think at his home at the time, I forget where he was living. And we'd done this one show together. And I was like, wow, did we really do that? <laughs> uh, and then the radio station changed formats. And so we were kind of brought together and then torn apart again, but we stayed in touch. And eventually, like five years after that, we were paired together for country oldies, which I didn't take too seriously at first. Uh, it was just a button pusher job for me. But he knew me and he knew my warped sense of humor. So he would do and he was and, and I was live and he was Memorex. OK, he was pre-recorded, and I would do the show live and he would like throw it to me. And I had no idea. Hey, Stu. And he would throw something at me. And he, he knew me well enough to know, A, what I was going to say, B, how long it would take me to say it. Uh, and so he would, and then he would like jump in. And oh my God, we had the radio executives at that station turning their heads like, wait a minute, how, how did he do that? How did, one guy's live, the other guy's Memorex. I mean, how did they, and we did that. Uh, and then suddenly after about two years, I start hearing, from around the station management never said anything to me, but a lot of the underlings said, you know, the, you know, the ratings you guys are getting. I'm like, no, no, you guys have ratings. And then other people from other radio stations were calling me I'm like W W blah, blah, blah station. Their ratings Sunday morning are through the roof. Is that you guys I'm like, uh, yeah. So I had a great 20 year career with Michael Burns. No more because we're still on. We, we took our four hour show. Uh, we scaled it down to one hour uh, and we're still syndicated on uh, smaller stations in the area. Uh, but we were an oldies show. And I think that's where the problem came in because oldies, as you know, have just fallen out of fashion. Look, when we were doing rare record shows on BZ, uh, there were management types in the background saying, we don't want that stuff on the air here anymore. We don't want that. You know, Oldies have just become the enemy. Old music is the enemy, especially when you're trying to market a contemporary music station. They don't want those older songs. So that's what happened with Michael and I. I think the only thing we were guilty of was hosting a old an oldie show. Uh, it, success didn't matter at that point. They just didn't want that kind of music anymore. They didn't want that association because it meant old, okay? And that's that's how we got bounced off the air. But that's just the indignity of radio. You know, you learn to live with it. Long well, as you have friends like Ken Meyer, what else do you need? <laughs> Oldies are still around. If you look at satellite radio, um, you know, Sirius XM satellite radio, you have a station in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, uh, uh, yeah, radio even, even that stations. keeps changing. It used to be 40 on 4, 50s on 5, 60s on 6. Now, I think... It's still 70s on 7, 80s on 8, but those 40s, 50s, and 60s channels have gone elsewhere on the tier. You have to really look for them now. Yeah, yeah. but they're, they're, they're still, still there. there. They're still there. Yeah. yeah, God bless them. They're still there. I know. They're still playing the stuff. I I have breakfast for the oldies channel every morning. As well you should. So <laughs> help you digest your food. Oh, I, uh, Johnny Tillotson helps immensely. And Johnny Tillotson uh, is good. Talk back trembling lips. Better than talk back trembling stomach. <laughs> you know, Michael Burns used to use a saying, and I have found it very true in this interview. 
we have had more fun than any two human beings are allowed <laughs> to have. And I, I really well, mean you, that. Well, you, th you know, um, look, I wouldn't have scored with Michael Burns if I wasn't used to being a co-host. And really, who did I sharpen that sword with? Well, it was with Kenny Meyer. I mean, you was pro I've had other co-hosts, but you were probably the first that I ever got on the air and just casually chatted with. Uh, and then the next thing you know, you look up at the clock and say, have we really been on the air for an hour? That's astounding. It's, um, it's a younger version of Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon. It, it, yes. <laughs> yes, I used, are. To, I used to say that I said that to Larry once and I said, you know, Larry, you and me, it's just like Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon. And he said, yeah, Ed, get out of the studio. <laughs> I would have never had the chops to work with Michael Burns if I hadn't worked with Ken Meyer. Well, I, do I appreciate we used that. To do, no, because we used to do record shows. That's what we did. I mean, I'm not saying that because you're on the line with me now, because that's what we did. We played oldies and we talked uh, and we made people giggle and maybe educated them and entertained them along the way. Uh, and it's good to see you're still doing it and I'm still doing it. Well, both, I both hope separately and together. I hope that there are people that will learn from this broadcast. And I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. We have to do this some more because I know you've got a bunch of things that, that we could play and enjoy with some of the, like even Carl D'Souza, I understand, made a record and you have it. He did. Somewhere. He did. I do. Somewhere. So you know what? Let's powwow on the phone. Let's come up with a, with a format or come up with an idea and uh, we'll put it together. We'll film it. We'll fill an hour. You'll call me back and we'll do this again. Promise. And someday... I have to come out to your house and just hang out for a day. I'll buy the food. But to hear some of the stuff that you've got, <laughs> I got to hear it. Got to hear it. All right. We'll brings, do it. Brings back so many memories. We'll Stu, do all thanks. of love and then some. <laughs> thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. You're a, you're a gem and a good friend. And, and uh, I can't say any more than that. Well, thank you, Kenny, and thanks to all the folks at BNN. It's a great pleasure to be on your broadcast service. And that will do it for this edition of City Talk. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.